The Bible tells us, from your, that is God's precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way, as it says in Psalm 119, verse 104. Thanks for joining me today on Reclaiming Your Legacy. This is Dennis Peterson. Now, can there be any better advice than Proverbs 4, verse 7? Here's what it says. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do, and whatever else you do, develop good judgment. Proverbs 16.16 16 adds to that and reminds me how much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Isn't it enlightening to see how God opens our understanding of life's issues as we get acquainted with the history of our human family, especially in light of God's Word? Historian Bill Federer gives us a historical bird's-eye view of how evil influencers in human history have sown discord to produce disruption in society, leading to a socialist tyranny. It happened in ancient times, and it happened in modern history, too. In two previous episodes of Reclaiming Your Legacy, we shared with our listeners parts of a presentation that Bill Federer did for Pastor Jack Hibbs. The link for those programs is at the program notes for today's program at reclaimyourlegacy.com. Look it up. It's under Understanding the Culture. He unpacked for us one of the most proven schemes of the devil. It's called discord, and it's remarkable to see how effective it's been to disrupt society, causing all sorts of agony and death in cultures down through history. In order to recognize the roots of demonic philosophies of mankind, the doctrines of demons and vain philosophies of man rather than the cornerstones of a Christ-centered love of the truth, Bill Federer does a brilliant job of giving us all a gift. He calls it understanding the culture, and in today's third part of his talk, he explores some of the roots of why modern governments have responded to the COVID crisis in the way they have done. Let's pick up where we left off as he showed us the way governments of the past have deliberately created disruption and unrest in social order in order to intervene and assert their dictatorial power. Let's listen. There are some areas where the people would not riot, and so they would import people that have a predisposition to rioting. Anyway, so let's look at the COVID response. The first thing was let criminals out of jail. Really? You couldn't figure out something else to do? <laughs> and then crime goes up in the big cities. And some people feel unsafe in the big cities and they move out. Who moves out? Well, maybe those with families. Certainly those that can afford to move out. Okay, a little better off economically, pro-family. They tend to belong to one political party. Who's left in the city? Well, more people dependent on government entitlements. They tend to belong to the other political party. And then businesses are closed and looted and allowed to be vandalized and police defunded. And so pro-business people move out of these big cities. Well, they pro-business, they tend to belong to that first political party. And then churches are shut down where pro-life social conservatives gather. And then schools are closed where kids that have been indoctrinated with hate America, Howard Zid, 1619 Project, they're free to riot. The net COVID response was more people of one political party move out of the big cities, leaving the other party with monopoly control over city politics. And in presidential election years, whoever wins the big city wins the state. 
You can do voter fraud if you want. Nobody's from the other parties there to watch. And, and whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes for the state. And the president is elected by electoral votes. It's a clear political advantage to one party by the COVID response and letting crime go up in the big city. I have something where I talk about deconstruction, where it's, um, it's a socialist tactic where you say negative things about a country's past to get people emotionally detached from it, then you get them into the neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you portray whatever future you have for them positively. It's a sales technique. If I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is I tell you negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're still brushing with that stuff, haven't you read it? It'll eat the enamel off your teeth. You're like, Ugh. You're repulsed by it. Now I got you in a neutral, you're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? And then I give you my pitch for this brand new tartar control breath freshener toothpaste. So it's a, it's a drive neutral. It's a gene editing program for a culture. Take out the old memory history and you put in the new. And so that's what they do. They go into the classroom, tell the kids negative things about the founder, took land from Indians, sold people into slavery. They were chauvinist students who were repulsed by them. Now forget the fact that our founders gave us a form of government where you get to be in charge of your life. Forget that. And so these kids are repulsed by it. Now you got the kids in a neutral. Then you can brainwash them and give them a positive pitch for LGBT or Islam or socialism. And Europe went through this. It went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with 1,000 years of Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, Jewish neighborhoods, to a secular Europe with the French Revolution, free sex, anything goes. Now it's turning into a Sharia socialist Europe. And then they tore down statues in France during the French Revolution. Good King Henry IV, and they dug up the bones of St. Genevieve, who got all the pairs to fast and pray so Attila would skip the sack in the city. But it's not just Western civilization. China did it. Third century B.C., the Warring States period. Six kingdoms fighting, one wins, led by Qin Shi Huangdi. And Qin Shi Huangdi was being criticized for doing things differently than they had been done before. And he got tired of being criticized, so he decided to destroy all records of how things were done before. And he burnt tens of thousands of bamboo annal books. So the, in Egypt, they wrote on papyrus reeds. In China, they wrote on strips of bamboo from top to bottom, and they wove them together. And, they, and he just burnt thousands of them. And his chancellor, uh, Li Si, wrote in 213 B.C., I, your servant, propose that all historians' records, other than those of Quinn's, be burned. If anyone under heaven has copies of the classics of history, they shall deliver them to the governor for burning. Anyone who dares discuss the classics of history shall be publicly executed. Anyone who uses history to criticize the present shall have his family executed. And anyone who has failed to burn the books after 30 days of this announcement will be sent to build a great wall. So this is an intentional cutting ties of the past so they can do their new people's whatever it was. So Mao Zedong did the same thing in the 1960s, 70s, it's called the Cultural Revolution, where he destroyed thousands of years of Chinese history. They did something called white shaming. So they'd bring anybody that was a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher that had been educated like with Western education, they would bring them in and cut them and they'd bleed and the more blood that these young kids could have on their uniforms, the more they considered they were loyal to the revolution. He destroyed the oldest Buddhist temple in China he destroyed the, the great gates of Beijing. Paris was going to have an exposition on Genghis Khan. For those not familiar, Genghis Khan was Mongolian who conquered China in the 1200s. And um, his son, uh, Kublai Khan, ran it to what's called the Wan Dynasty. It was the largest contiguous empire in world history. Yes. It went from Korea to Hungary to Russia. It's considered an embarrassment to the Chinese because, you know, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan were Mongolian. And so here... 
they decide to erase Genghis Khan from Chinese history. You're just going to erase the largest contiguous land empire in world history. So in Paris, they were going to have an exhibition. He calls them and says, cancel it. They can't. And they're tearing down and did trashing monuments to Genghis Khan in the areas around Mongolia. And, and Pol Pot does the same thing in Cambodia. Khmer Rouge. And he decided that uh, 1975 was the New Year Zero. And anything prior to that was irrelevant. And he killed anybody that wore glasses. If you wore glasses, you could read. If you read, you knew the history. And he kills a third of his country. And Sharia Islam does the same thing. They come into a country, they destroy the libraries, the artwork, the museum. A socialist who died in prison in Italy, Antonio Gramsci, says, you can't defeat America on the battlefield. So you have to rot them from within. And so it's called the long march through the institution. It's going to take a long time, but we're going to rot every single area. He says, the civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2,000 years. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot be overthrown until those roots are cut. Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new world order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. The famous poet Carl Sandburg wrote, When a nation goes down, one condition may always be found. They forget where they came from. It's important for us to note what Bill Federer mentioned in his talk when he said country is controlled by laws. Laws are controlled by politicians. Politicians are controlled by voters. Voters are controlled by public opinion. Public opinion is controlled by media, education, the church, and the Internet. Bill Federer continues his presentation going deeper into how to brainwash a nation. Listen to part of what he shared And be sure to link to the whole recording at reclaimyourlegacy.com for this episode called Understanding the Culture, Part 3. Ben, um, in the 1800s, marketing was Wells Fargo Wagon and Sears Catalog. And they would list every single feature about an item that they're selling, like a sewing machine. And then the early 1900s came along and they began to sell things through magazines and not let people know about the product. And the classic is Crisco. Nobody knew what was in Crisco. (laughs) And uh, yet they had these slick magazine advertisements of happy families with really nice looking food and it made it look like everybody's using it. And they even made up a term, vegetable based. Nobody knew what vegetable-based was, but yet it was so effective, it put out of business the lard industry. Right? They used to render fat from animals that then used it to make soap and so forth. And so, do you know what's in Crisco? Cottonseed oil. So in the South, they would grow cotton, and then they would have these seeds that they wouldn't use, and they just pile them up, mountains of these things. And uh, somebody had the, they would smash them into this black, mucky oil that they would use in machinery in factories. Nobody ate that stuff. And somebody had the idea of boiling it and bleaching it and putting it in cans and selling it with a nice ad campaign. And we've all eaten it. And um, so, but it was a phenomenon. Instead of people knowing everything about a sewing machine, they know nothing about it, but it looks like everybody's using it. And so there was the popular cartoon in the New York newspaper called Keeping Up with the Joneses. And it's this idea that you're buying things because you see other people with things, not because it's, you've done your homework. And then we see how to influence and brainwash a nation 
Sensationalism through publications, magazines, newspapers, and the classic is the Spanish-American War. And so the country was pretty isolationist. We we're busy with our own lives, but uh, there was injustice going on in Cuba. And William Randolph Hearst, New York Journal, and Pulitzer Prize, or Joseph Pulitzer, who does the Pulitzer Prize, he had the New York World. And they began to stir up public sentiment, not to buy a sewing machine or Crisco, but to intervene in Cuba with a foreign policy. And so Hearst famously had his illustrator, Frederick Remington, go to Cuba and document it. And there was the um, Spanish General Weiler, and he had concentration camps, and hundreds of thousands were being killed. And Frederick Remington, uh, Hearst told Remington, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. Now. It did mobilize the country to get involved and to free Cuba from the oppressive Spanish government. We need to do that again, only this time from a totalitarian government. But it's this idea that the press realized that they had the ability to sway public opinion, not just to buy Crisco, but to change their views on foreign policy. Then we see the radio drama, War of the Worlds, 1938. And Orson Welles is an actor, and it's H.G. Welles's uh, space novel. But he uh, is, goes on the radio, and he says, we interrupt this program to announce that New Jersey is being invaded by Martians. Everybody in the country panics, freaks out, runs outside, and looks for spaceships. Right? It was a phenomenon that how you could get an entire nation to go into instant panic and fear and hysteria. And uh, so this was studied by Joseph Goebbels. He is the Nazi minister of propaganda. And he realized fear of the war and people changing their behavior if they see everybody else buying a product or whatever. And so he would orchestrate these events with 100,000 people and they would begin to give the Hitler salute at the front and it would work its way back. And then everybody would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute, and, and then you would feel pressure to give it, and then people would see you giving it, and they would feel pressure to give it. And all of the country was suddenly wrapped up in supporting this. I mean, how do you brainwash a nation? Well, he figured out that you have fear, and you, ha you make it look like everybody's doing it. So it's actually got a term. It's called fear-mongering, and it's the manipulation of people into hysteria. Now, America begins to do something similar, and we have a Army and Air Force motion picture service. I mean, what are they doing making motion pictures? They just think, oh, we want to do some entertainment. No, they realize that this is a powerful, persuasive means, and they would even set up uh, tables in the lobby of the movie theater to sign up recruits. It was legitimate in the sense that it was mobilizing the country for a patriotic purpose to defend our country against a genuine threat. But it shows the power that they've been studying on how to manipulate and how to get people to not just to buy a product, but to buy an ideology. This was studied some more with the movie Gaslight. Ingrid Bergman is a young uh, woman whose aunt was a famous actress in the movie, and the, the aunt was given some jewels, and she dies. And all of her acting stuff and whatever else is stored in the attic, and Ingrid Bergman inherits the, the house. It's in London. And Anyway, a guy wants the jewels, 
And so he becomes friends with her and courts her and marries her. He wants to, um, uh, you know, the old black and white movies, he like puts her in her bedroom and he says, I'm going to go for a walk and smoke his pipe or whatever. And he goes out of the house down the street. And like in London, all the houses are connected like Mary Poppins, you know. And, and so he climbs along the roofs and goes in through the attic and turns the gas lamp on in the attic. And when he turns it on in the attic, it gets dimmer in her bedroom. And she tells him, she goes, you know, every time when you go out for a walk, uh, the light gets dimmer in my bedroom. And she tells him, she goes, you know, every time when you go out for a walk, uh, the light gets dimmer in my bedroom. He says, oh, your eyes are playing tricks on you. You're seeing things. You're going crazy. Maybe you're going. And then he would egg her on. He would show her a brand new watch. And then he said, hey, we're going to go out to dinner to this big public event. And everybody's there. And he's showing his watch. And then all of a sudden he says, my watch is gone. And everybody's looking around for it. And then he reaches in her purse in front of everybody and pulls it out and says, oh, you took it. But it's not your fault. You're a kleptomaniac. And, and you didn't know what you were doing. You're just going. And he was convincing her that she is crazy. And he's about to sign her into an insane asylum. Then he can go in the attic and dig around all he wants for the jewels until the hero of the movie sees the guy go down the street and saw his light go on in the attic and it goes dimmer in the bedroom and he breaks the story and he gets drug away. But it's this concept that went into our vernacular, gaslighting. How you manipulate a person, but now we're taking it to a national level. How do you manipulate perception for an entire nation? Now, it actually goes back to ancient Greece. Now, the most common form of government in world history is kings, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. And if you have an agenda, how do you pitch your agenda to the king? Right? So in China, the emperors had 2,000 concubines and they had the Mandarin eunuchs. And it, you would have to bribe the Mandarins uh, to uh, arrange for you to get a meeting with the emperor so you could pitch your agenda. Well, in Athens, they didn't have an emperor or a king. It was the people who were in charge. And if you have an agenda, how do you pitch your agenda to an entire city? That's when they invented theater. They'd get the whole city in a big outdoor amphitheater, and they would put on plays, comedies, satires, tragedies, where they would ridicule and buffoon some points of view and honor and extol other points of view. And if you've ever read Greek Aristophanes, who was, wrote comedies, I mean, they would ridicule politicians by name. Sort of like, you know, Saturday Night Live, where they'd make somebody act like the, the politician and make fun of them. And people would leave the theater saying, I don't want to be like that poor guy that was made fun of. And they start backing away from him. And then they portray somebody else or other views as noble and, you know, upright. And people leave the theater and say, oh, I want to be like that. And from that time till now, Theater is always political in a country where it's the people who are in charge. I mean, somebody's paying for all that stuff to be on there, and they're pushing. Somebody's writing the script. Somebody's hiring the people that write the scripts, right? And so you think of your favorite sitcom or movie, and there is a character that you like, you identify with. They're cute, they're funny, they're the hero. And as this series goes on, this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. Little lust, little cheating, little lying, little revenge. And you find yourself apologizing for him, saying, yeah, I know James Bond is with a woman he's not married to, but he's about to save the world. So can we get on with the story? And it minimizes something that used to be really important, right? Marital fidelity. It's sort of, oh, that's not that important. And, and then they will portray people who hold to old traditional values. 
make them look like simpletons and bumpkins and backwards and idiots. And you turn the show off like, man, that guy did look a little bit. He was like too strict and he was too... And the other person, you know, he was cool. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go out and buy the tennis shoes. You want to emulate. So from that time till now, theater, media is a way to manipulate the public. So if you have an agenda, you want to begin to portray it positively and then those that you don't like, you begin to portray them negatively, and you're moving the population in your political direction the same way that the Greeks did. So it's sort of a gaslighting type thing. Now this was studied. We are all familiar with the psychological operations called PSYOPs during World Wars I and II and after that, where our army would drop pamphlets in the other nation's language that would say things like, oh, your side is already lost and you're just, your general just hasn't told you yet, but, but you're really just fighting futile and you just go ahead and give up and, and it would mess with their minds. But they did the same thing to us. And so the famous is Tokyo Rose. She had a really sort of seductive voice and she'd be on the radio in English and she'd be telling all the Americans like, oh, you're terrible and, and you're, you know, and so forth. So this has been studied, how you manipulate Sun Tzu's art of war, fifth century BC in China. Generals would fight and Sun Tzu said, the best general is the one who can get his enemy to surrender without even fighting that you psych them out. You make them think that you're more powerful than you are. You make it look like your troops are everywhere. You, make, you, you mess with their minds, psych them out, and then they lose heart and they surrender. The, the Sun Tzu's art of war. But then there's something else called fifth generation warfare. And that's where you get your enemy to surrender without them even knowing that there was a war. And that's what we're experiencing right now. They get you to surrender, but you don't even know that you're in a war. I mean, that's like the ultimate. Wanting to influence the this mental psyche, the view of a large population. Another step in it is the Cold War. Our country was busy with all of our lives, and the CIA director was Alan Dulles, and he realized that we needed to mobilize our country to fight communism. It's called Operation Mockingbird. He had the CIA feed stories to all the top news agencies in America to get people you know, mobilized to the threat. But he confessed to it. It's in uh, Carl Bernstein, who was the famous Watergate Washington Post reporter, wrote about it in a Rolling Stones interview in 1977, how the CIA is feeding stories to our press. So now we have big tech wanting to sway what people think. Well, isn't this enlightening? Bill Federer's treasury of knowledge about the past really does help us see more clearly what's going on today, doesn't it? Now, do you see another dimension in Hosea 4, 6, where it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge? And that's why God wants us to not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, but rather expose them to be assessed by all. Bill Federer's treasury of information is at AmericanMinute.com. And you can see the whole talk at ReclaimYourLegacy.com. And if you haven't yet accessed the many valuable tools, links, and videos at ReclaimYourLegacy.com, you're in for a feast worth sharing with friends. And while you're there, I want to invite you to partner with us as God leads you so we can continue serving you and our entire listening community with these resources. The donate page at ReclaimYourLegacy.com gives you several ways that you can help. It's really true. We depend on the gifts of our growing team of listening friends. And until next time, thanks for joining us today. This is Dennis Peterson.